0: This is a continuation of our Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ series that we've been doing as we walk through the life of Christ. We're walking through the life of Christ in a chronological fashion, and we want to cover everything in all the Gospels. And so we are bouncing back and forth between the Gospels, which has um, its challenges. But also I believe that it allows allow us to see the life of Christ fully as we go through the Gospels, and we'll be able to savor Christ fully. Uh, and worship him more rightly now today, as you 're turning to that passage, this is, this, this is luke 's version of the passage we looked at last week, or at least I believe it is there are some who, who disagree with that. but I believe this is luke 's version of what we studied last week in Mark chapter one, verses sixteen through twenty, and uh, it 's also paralleled in Matthew chapter four so it 's the same story, albeit from a different angle. So please stand if you would, as we read this story, this account of Jesus calling his disciples to abandon everything and to become men-catchers. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. This is the, the word of Christ. This carries the same authority as if Jesus were standing here preaching to you this morning. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for the four different gospels we have that you used four different human authors and inspired them with the truth to write down these true words, words of Jesus, words about the life of Jesus, and that we can mine from these great gospels, uh, these great books of the Bible, these gospels. We can mine tremendous treasure. And I pray, Lord, at the end of the service today that we would treasure Jesus more than when we came in. And Father, the only way that can happen is if you take your word and make it fruitful. Because I'm too weak, I'm too sinful. I pray that you would enable me to preach rightly, enable all of us to hear rightly. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, how many of you here, how many kids, how many of you guys have been fishing before? Been fishing? I mean... Nobody's been fishing? Uh, raise your hands high so I can see. All right. Fishing. Do you like to fish? Children, do you like to fish? How many of you love fishing? Okay. Only three or four left. How many of you are really good at fishing? There's one left. All right. What's the most fish you've ever caught at once? Six or seven. That's pretty good. Pretty good. I remember once, I was about your age. And I was maybe a little bit younger. I was with my dad fishing in Kentucky. This is before we moved overseas to Ecuador. And um, we went out fishing one day. And um, I really didn't know how to fish very much. And we only got to fish a little bit before we moved to Ecuador. And I didn't really fish much more after that. So I'm I'm not good at fishing at all. But I, I was fishing with my dad. And I remember this like it was yesterday. We're fishing. And next thing I know, I catch something almost immediately. As soon as I throw my line in, I've caught a fish. And uh, throw my line back in, I've caught another fish. And Dad's sitting there just kind of watching me as I'm pulling in. the. He's unhooking it for me. He would take his line back. And the next thing I know, I I caught 10 fish that day. And Dad only caught like one. I caught 10 fish that day, and I was so proud of myself. We have a picture. My mom and dad has a picture of all my fish laid out there, and Dad's one fish. Now, he may have been fishing for something different. I think all I was catching were these little bluegill things. And uh, But I was catching fish left and right, and at first it was just kind of funny, but I do think my dad was getting a little frustrated after a while of watching my success and him just struggling and toiling and nothing's biting his line. And that's my, my big fishing story. That was uh, uh, the, the only time that I can really say that I caught uh, a decent amount of fish. I'm not a, I'm not a big fisherman. I, my, my problem, Noah and I were having this discussion on the way here this morning because we, we tried some fishing. Noah tried some fishing at the beach this week with no success. See, our problem isn't fishing. We're, we're good at fishing. We're just bad at catching, all right? We're really good at fishing. You can get the line all dressed up and cast. I can cast like anybody. It's just actually getting the fish out there to bite the hook. Um, when we go fishing in Arkansas, I've got a, one of Heather's cousins. I mean, he just whips it out of there, whoop, whoop, brings in a fish and. All the rest of us are sitting there for hours and nothing's happening. He either knows exactly where the fish are at or he's got some sort of magic technique to get them in. But but I myself, I I struggle with fishing. And I can only imagine the story here today that we're looking at. I mean, I've got a fish story that's 10 fish. I caught 10 fish once. I can only imagine the story that these guys told after this fishing experience with Jesus. Last week we saw... Mark and we saw, we referred to Matthew's account of this same story. And like I said, Luke is now giving us the same story, but from a little different angle and a little bit different information. Um, It's not that it's a different story. Now, some scholars do think this is a different incident. I believe it's the same one. I believe that it's uh, it's not in chronological order in Luke. Luke has a tendency to do that sometimes, to put things more in a thematic order. I think when he says on one occasion there in verse 1, that's a very general term. It's not it doesn't seem to be referring to a specific the next thing that's happening in the story. He's just saying on one occasion and he tells this story of the fisherman. And it's it's just told from a different angle. It's kind of like um it's kind of like during football season and and there's there's some really close play and they start showing all the different angles, right? And I don't know if you've ever watched a football game and and now the the play has to be reviewed and and the commentators are saying, well, we don't think it's a touchdown. Looking at, the, looking at the camera angles here, we don't think it's a touchdown. We're going to go to the break, go to the commercial break, and we'll come back and see what the officials have decided. And they come back, and sometimes the announcers will be saying, well, we've seen a new angle. We've seen a new angle. Now we do think it was a touchdown because now from this angle, you can see the ball cross the line or, or whatever. And so this is sort of the, the image I want you to have in your mind here. It's not that this is a different story. It's that Luke is telling it from a, from a different angle for us to get a better understanding of it. Now, uh, John, he doesn't even give us this story. He simply refers to these same disciples uh, coming to know uh, Jesus earlier on, uh, right after Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, But Mark and Matthew and Luke give us a little bit more understanding of how that initial association of these disciples with Jesus wasn't a formal discipleship, if you will. They weren't formally attached to Jesus where they were willing to leave everything until this story here Today. And so, this story today, I want us to look at it from, uh, as last week we looked at Mark 1, we focused on the divine call of, of Christ upon his disciples to be, to be people who would radically submit to him. He said, Follow me. Uh, and then to radical transformation, follow me and I will make you become. And then also a radical mission, fishers of men. So, last week we were talking about following, becoming, and fishing. But today, I want us to focus not so much on the divine call of Christ upon these fishermen, but upon Jesus himself, what he shows them and us about himself in today's passage. What is it about Jesus that leads these men at the very end of this story to leave everything and follow him? So my desire is for us to see and savor the glory and the majesty of Christ in today's passage and let that change us. So there's two things, though. There's two things I'm hoping to to structure the sermon this way. Two things I want to see happen. Number one, I want to spend most of our time zooming in and focusing, as I just said, on the divine majesty of Jesus as he displays himself to Simon Peter and to his friends in the story. And then number two, I want to conclude by, by pulling the lens back and looking a little bit wider angle here and see what it is that Jesus is doing here. What is he saying in light of who he is What is he saying about the task that he's calling these men to? Because I believe this whole incident here is designed to show these men how they are to carry out the task of being man catchers, being fishers of men. This is an object lesson, if you will, a living parable, a divine teachable moment. This isn't just about fishing; they're not out just about. This this whole incident isn't just about fishing. It has a greater purpose. It's kind of like, well, in, in Karate Kid. Mr. Miyagi, right? He has Danielson waxing on and waxing off. He wasn't just waxing cars. What was he doing? He was training him to do karate. By, I'm sure you can get trained that way so long as you wax on and wax off enough times. And I'm sure Danielson, being a teenager, never cut a corner and just started going like this. I'm sure he just did this the whole time. But he wasn't learning how to wax cars. He was learning karate, right? So these men, this isn't just about fishing. He is showing them something else about ...their task of being man-catchers. And, and so I'll bring the sermon to a conclusion on that focus. Now, many people call this story, and it may be labeled in your Bible... ...the, the great catch, uh, or the miraculous catch of fish. I, I believe that's a bad label because this story is about the great fisherman. And that's Jesus Christ. This story is all about Jesus. I want to see his greatness on display. And I pray that we will witness the majesty of Christ in the story today. So, I want us to see His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, we'll just jump right into your notes here. Jesus' majesty is on display in this text, number one, as He speaks divine words. Jesus' majesty, His glory, His divine nature is on display in this passage today as He speaks divine words. It says, The passage begins by saying on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And as I mentioned last week that's just another word for the Sea of Galilee. Now this is the first time Luke uses this phrase word of God. It'll become a favorite phrase of Luke's both in this book here the Gospel of Luke and also in in its sequel the Acts of the Apostles. It's the same phrase that ...that Luke refers to when he talks about the apostles teaching the word of God... ...showing that there's a consistent and unbroken connection... ...between what emanates from the lips of Jesus... ...and the apostolic teaching that we have right here in this book called the Bible. It's an unbroken chain. We have the word of God. So we use this phrase, word of God, a lot of times, rightly so, to refer to the Bible... But, but, but we're not to read this as if Jesus is just sitting here reciting or reading Scripture out loud. I'm sure he is referring to the Scriptures. But, but what Luke is meaning here, he is talking about the nature of the words coming out of Jesus' mouth. That he is authoritatively speaking on God's behalf. He is speaking the words of God. The phrase literally means the word that comes from God. Jesus never uttered a wrong word in any of his sermons. Unlike foolish sinners... And, and, and it's preachers like myself that make a lot of mistakes. Jesus, his sermons never had mistakes in it. His PowerPoints didn't have any mistakes like last week, right? Uh, he didn't have PowerPoint. But he didn't have any mistakes in anything he said. There was, there was, it was always on target, perfectly in line with the thoughts of his father. His words about his father were always spot on. He, as the second person in the Godhead, he could make no mistakes in his sermons. John 12, 49 says, For I have not spoken, this is Jesus speaking, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say, and what to speak. John 14, 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. The, the union that that Christ has as being the second person in the Godhead with the Father means that there was never a a straying word from Jesus' sermons. And so if we believe, as I said, that this use of the phrase word of God shows an unbroken connection between the words emanating from Jesus' lips and the apostolic teaching of Acts, and if we believe that this is the apostolic teaching that we have, then there's no straying words here either. These are the perfect words of God. These words that come from God. They were captivating the people. For Jesus spoke like none before and none after. Matthew seven twenty nine says, For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I love the account from John 7. Do you remember this? We'll get to it eventually as we go through the series. I'm sure we'll be in John 7 by the year 2015. I love the account from John 7 where the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to arrest Jesus. Do you remember this? And they come back empty-handed. And the angry Jewish leaders demand to know why they didn't arrest Jesus. And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. I love that. (laughs) No one ever spoke like this man. And no one ever will, for Jesus has the final word from God. He is the final word of God. God has spoken clearly by His Son. It's what Hebrews 1, 2 teaches us. So the word of God has the power to draw men. Notice the crowds are pressing in on Jesus. The word of God has the power to draw men. There is no indication that he's doing any miracles here. He's not putting on any show. He's simply preaching and teaching the word of God. We live in a day and age where the church has lost its confidence in the word of God. We think we've got to do something to make church more attractive. Something to to tickle people's ears, to make them want to come to this place. But we can and we should just preach the Word of God and trust that it itself will do the work of drawing men. And so, let us be faithful and be satisfied with the Word, the sufficiency of the Word. I mean, what does it say when we think we've got to come up with other types of gimmicks to try to connect people with the church and try to get people to come to Christ. What does it say about our confidence in this word? What does it say about our belief in its sufficiency? We might as well just interrupt Jesus while he's on the beach preaching and say, hey, Jesus, you got to do something else. This is a little boring, a little time-consuming. How about you cut it off for about 20 minutes and we do a, how about a skit, Jesus? Those fishermen out there, they could do some sort of skit. Or how about some interpretive dance? Mary over here, she could do something, right? Don't interrupt Jesus while he's speaking. Church, don't interrupt Jesus by limiting the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. Let it go forth. I lament for churches that have to continually drum up new and creative ways to keep people coming you ever seen some of those crazy pop stars? I mean, who it is, whoever it is, Lady Gaga or whoever it is. I mean, and, and they're always doing something else. They do something dramatic to get in the news. And then their next show, they got to do something even more amazing. And eventually they run out of ideas and they fade off of the scene, don't they? And someone more spectacular is on the scene, more newsworthy, doing something else a little bit more attractive. That's how many churches act, dress up like pop stars, hoping that people pay attention to us. And then we got to do something more exciting the next time. So here's Jesus speaking the word of God, but the crowd is beginning to press in on him. So Jesus graciously, he sees two boats on the lake from which he can speak. Now this may just seem like it's coincidental, like, well, he just sees two boats. He oh, I'm just going to get in one of these boats. But we know there are no coincidences with Jesus. He has a purpose behind this whole incident. It's perfectly planned. And this is, a, this is going to be a huge teaching moment for these fishermen. But he gets into a boat and he continues to teach from the boat. Before he gets into Simon's boat, he asks him to put it out a little from the land. He sits down and he continues to teach. It's very clear from the Gospels that Jesus' primary ministry was teaching and preaching. Teaching and preaching the word of God. My friends, we need to see the glory of that. That God came in the flesh and he spoke. And he spoke in words. And we have words. Those words are recorded right here for us. We worship a God who speaks. That is an awesome thing. In these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And he didn't just speak the words. He taught the words. He explained the words. There's sometimes a, a disconnect. And there was, I don't think so much anymore, but I think about 30 years ago during the, during the crisis, or was it more than 30 years ago, at the, in the late 1970s when the Southern Baptists were trying to decide are we going to believe the Bible or not, what we call the conservative resurgence, there began to be some on the conservative side of things that were uh, focusing so much on the epistles because the, those on the liberal side of things were only focusing on the Gospels. And they created this divide. well, this is what Jesus said, and well, here's what Paul has to say. No, no no. The, the, the epistles are the teaching about what Jesus said and did. You can't separate those. they, they go together hand and glove. And so Jesus has given us a word, and he has explained His word to us. And so the, the things that Paul say are just as authoritative as the words that are written in red ink in your Bible. just as authoritative. He taught. So I want us to see and savor this truth this morning that the majesty of Christ is on display here simply from the the fact that he is speaking divine words. But but secondly, I want us to see that Jesus' majesty is on display as he employs divine omniscience. He employs divine omniscience. Verse 4, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. So he tells Peter to get into the boat, to push the boat away from the shore. Let's go out to the deep part of the lake and let's start fishing. Now, remember, he already knows these men. So it's not like these are just strangers to him. But at the same time, you'll notice that Peter's a little bit hesitant here. Simon answers, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. Now you can understand Peter's hesitancy here. Jesus has shown them some amazing things so far. They were with him at the wedding of Canaan. They were with him in Jerusalem. They've seen his his witnessing to the woman at the well. But they also know that he's not a fisherman. He's he's what? He's a carpenter's son. So so Jesus, I can understand Peter's a little hesitant here. What what does Jesus really know about fishing? I mean, Peter, on the other hand, he's, he's obviously the leader of this band of fishermen. He's probably the most skilled and most expert fisherman there. He knows what he's doing. Unlike Noah and I this week. Peter knows what he's doing. So, so Jesus doesn't really seem to be qualified to give advice. So would be kind of like me, playing a at golf with Tiger Woods and giving him some pointers. Tiger, that swing's just a little. You need to do more with the hips or something there, you know, you know. All I do is I take a metal rod and swing it at a white ball and hope it goes in the direction that's somewhat close to the hole. That's how I play golf. And so it would be foolish for me to sit there with a Tiger and give him putting advice while we're out playing. And so that's kind of, I'm sure, how Peter's feeling a little bit here. Perhaps Peter and his friends were initially a bit put off even. They were tired. They had toiled all night. They were frustrated. They had, they had taken nothing. They had caught nothing. And, and frankly, this was bad advice. This wasn't the time for fishing. The right, it wasn't the right place for fishing. You see, you fished in the deep at nighttime. That's what time you fished in the deep. And you did the shoreline fishing with the smaller nets during the day. Jesus' advice is all wrong here. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong, wrong, wrong. It's illogical. It doesn't make sense. Friends, much of what Jesus has to say to us will confound us. Go against our logic. Confound our wisdom. It'll go against what? What we consider to be the right way to do things is counterintuitive. Peter could have easily said, oh, Jesus, poor Jesus, you're just a carpenter. You go back to making stools, and we'll do the fishing, all right? How many today, today do that with Jesus? Oh, he was just a first century Jew. How can, how can Jesus' words really have any meaning for 21st century people like us that are dealing with all the, the challenges of modern life? And so people begin to disregard Jesus' words. They dismiss what Jesus says about one thing or another. Take Rob Bell. Once believed in hell, but it's no longer fashionable to believe in hell. And in a modern society like ours today, surely we can't, can't believe in a, in a literal hell where people will suffer eternally forever. Despite the fact that Jesus talks about it more than about anything else. Over and over and over again, he speaks of hell. And so you have to dismiss what Jesus says. Push it aside. But by God's grace, Peter doesn't give in to his initial hesitancy. He, he's been around this man long enough, long enough to know that he's like no other man. And so he says, at your word, I will let down the nets. He obeys the Lord Jesus. He follows Jesus' word. So now... Upon obedience to Jesus' command and upon faith in Jesus' authority, Peter has his eyes opened to the omniscience, the all-knowing nature of this Jesus who is the king of the universe. Jesus is about to show Peter who he is. He is the creator of every living creature. And by nature of who he is, he knows where the fish fish are. You know, he doesn't need one of those little sonar things. Right? Right? That's what I need, and I still can't catch fish, even with the little sonar thing that shows me there's a school of fish down there. Jesus doesn't need that. He has divine omniscience to know where every fish on the planet is at any given moment. Jesus is putting his divinity on display. And although he chose willingly not to make use of all of his divine prerogatives all the time, at any given moment as he walked in lockstep with his Father, filled with the Holy Spirit, he had access to divine omniscience simply because of who he is. Namely, the creator and sustainer of the universe. Including the creator and sustainer of every single fish in that sea. Colossians 1 says that in him all things hold together. Jesus is holding the subatomic particles together that constitute the whole universe. So how hard is it for him to find some fish? You see, Peter and them don't get this yet. They're going to begin to. My friends, do you believe that about Jesus? I hate seeing Christians walk around worrying all the time like they serve some sort of weak God. My friends, we obey the sometimes strange, sometimes illogical, sometimes hard to understand words of Christ because he holds the molecular structure of the entire cosmos together. He is the king of the universe. Who better to tell us when and where and how and why to live our lives than Jesus Christ? And why should we worry and fear? Matthew 10, 29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus is God and in perfect lockstep with the Father and therefore if the scriptures say that no sparrow can fall to the ground in the deepest darkest jungle of Africa apart from the knowledge of God then I trust my life with that God. You can do whatever you want to with me Jesus. I will trust and obey. At your word I will do whatever. So Peter and the apostles at your word we'll do this, even though it doesn't make any sense. At your word, we're going to do it. They they demonstrate faith, trust, and obedience. And so this transforms from a picture of futility, from a picture of futility to a picture of fruitfulness. They've been toiling all night. The experts have been toiling all night. And now they put their faith in Christ and the fruit begins to come. Now, for these men, Jesus says to go out there, go to the deep water, drop your nets. Peter obeys and upon his obedience, we read in verse 6, that they, when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. And so the next thing I want us to see is not only Jesus' majesty on display as he speaks divine words, as he employs divine omniscience, but also as he exercises divine power. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. You see, Jesus not only knew the location of the fish, Jesus had ordained that the fish be there in massive numbers at that specific time in that specific place. These were not small nets that these guys had. They were using their big nets. These are the nets they used in the deep. These were not small nets. These were not weak nets. And yet we read that their nets were breaking. These nets had been made for good catches of fish for great catches of fish, for super catches of fish, but they couldn't handle a supernatural catch of fish. But that's not all. It says in verse 7, They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. (laughs) These were not small boats. These were not small nets. These were not small boats. These were big boats. They were not leaky boats. And yet we read that they began to sink. These boats had been made for good catches of fish, for great catches of fish, for super catches of fish. But these boats could not handle a supernatural catch of fish. This was utterly amazing to Peter and to the others who were there. They had never witnessed anything like this. The raw power of God on display was amazing. And just think about it. There had to be tons of fish there for these boats to begin to sink. It's massive, massive mountains of fish. I can only imagine the people on the shoreline as they're watching all this transpire. They're watching Peter and them go out to the deep. What are they doing out there? And then they see them pull the nets over. What are they doing? It's, it's the middle of the day. Why are they throwing their nets over the side? And then next thing they see them pulling up these nets and, and the, all the fish just pouring into the boat. And they see the boat's beginning to sink. And it's an amazing thing to witness. The divine power, the raw power of Christ. On display. And perhaps it was at this point that Peter realized that the man sitting in his boat was not catching fish, he was commanding fish, and the fish were obeying. Maybe it's at this point that, that Peter realizes that that though he himself was a master fisherman, this man was the master of the fish and the master of all creation, and he was sitting in his boat. Christ would demonstrate his divine power over and over and over again to these men. But this was one of the first times they get a glimpse of it. And they, it's just a tiny sliver of his divine power. Hebrews 1 says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Those same subatomic particles that I was talking about earlier that he holds together have great power and energy stored up in them so that when, the, when nuclear fission occurs, we know that there's a, there's a massive explosion of energy that can be produced. Yet Christ by his divine power created that energy potential and holds it all together thus exercising the greatest power in the universe greater power than any man could fathom. So how how hard is it then for him to command fish a boatload of fish to be at a specific spot at a specific time? Piece of cake. His power is on display and because his divine power is on display we read It says, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And so the next thing I want us to see on display here is Jesus' majesty is on display as he exhibits divine holiness. Luke tells us that everyone was amazed, verse 9 For he and all who were with him were astonished or amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. So everybody's amazed, but but Peter's reaction goes beyond amazement and into worship. There's a difference between being attracted to Jesus and amazed by Jesus and worshiping Jesus. Friends, a lot of people are astonished and amazed by Jesus, but Jesus is looking for, he's not looking for a gawking crowd, but he's looking for a worshiping people. We must move from astonishment and amazed curiosity about Jesus ...to being flat on our faces in worship of Jesus. You see, Peter realizes that this man who speaks the words of God... ...who employs the omniscience of God... ...who exercises the power of God... ...must be holy God. And he reacts the way that everyone in Scripture reacts... ...when they see God for who He is. He fell down on his knees saying, "...Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." Peter recognizes that this is more than just a man. The fish obey this man... Peter knew that due to his own sin, he he was cursed like all men are to toil. Why was he toiling through the night? Because all men have been cursed by sin. We've inherited Adam's nature. We've inherited Adam's guilt. And part of the curse is we have to work for our food. We have to work the ground. We have to toil. He's been toiling all night. But up walks a man, a new Adam, who has dominion over creation. And he commands fish to get in a net, and they get in a net and he realizes, this man's not a sinner like I am. He's not a sinner like I am. I'm a sinner. I have to toil. I, I, I toil with futility. But this man speaks with fruitfulness. And immediately the fish jump into the net. And when the divine power of Christ is on display, it doesn't make Peter giddy. Oh, yay. That's when we come to church wanting I want an experience, something to make me giddy. My friends, do you come to church to land flat on your face like Peter did? I don't think people come to church for that. They want an experience that makes the hair stand up on the back of the neck instead of an experience that will break their knees and take them to the ground. Peter's not all giddy here. Peter's not giving high fives to his new fishing buddy. Peter's not pumped up by his Jesus moment. Peter is crushed Peter is humbled. Peter is undone. Peter experiences divine trauma. I don't think people come to church for divine trauma. My friends, discipleship begins with you being crushed. It begins with divine trauma. If you're here this morning, you've never been crushed over the fact that you are a sinner and that Jesus is the holy God, then you're in trouble and you're not a disciple. Disciples are first and foremost crushed sinners. And that's the consistent testimony of Scripture. What happened when sinful Adam heard the Lord coming? What did he do? He ran and hid from the Lord. He feared for Adam knew he was a sinner and that the God who was coming into the garden to speak with him was holy. When Abram met the Lord at the oaks of Mamre, he bowed himself low to the ground. When Job got a fuller glimpse of God than he had ever had before during all of his calamity, he said, I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. The whole people of Israel begged Moses to speak on God's behalf, saying, Do not let God speak to us lest we die. Joshua, as he prepared to enter the promised land, met the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord, the Lord of hosts, and fell on his face and worshipped Gideon upon seeing the same angel of the Lord feared that he would die. Later in Judges thirteen, we read of Samson's parents as the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, appeared to them. Manoah said to his wife, "We shall surely die, for we have seen God." And of course, Isaiah, when he saw the glory of the Lord in the temple, said, "Woe is me, for I am lost; for I am a man of unclean lips, and I will dwell in the midst. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King." The Lord of hosts. Ezekiel fell on his face as the Lord revealed his glory to him. And as the Lord drew near to Daniel, in Daniel's vision, Daniel said, I was frightened and fell on my face. Zechariah, as well as Mary, upon seeing the angel Gabriel come and speak to them. Great trouble fell upon them. They, great fear fell upon them. Saul was knocked to the ground as he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. And John, who was here at this very incident, later on at Patmos, years later upon seeing the glory of Christ, fell to the ground as if he was dead. That's the consistent testimony of people that see the glory of Christ. And we come for giddy fun experiences. We're fools. Peter knows divine word of God, divine omniscience, divine power equals holy God. Peter sees it, but do we see the glory of Christ in this text today? Does it take your breath away? Peter knows that he's a sinner, and as a sinner, he cannot be in the presence of divine holiness. That's why he says, Depart from me. Friends, the more Peter sees of Jesus, the more he sees of himself. Harbors, if we truly desire to see and savor Jesus more and more, we better get ready because it's going to be a painful experience. That'll attract the visitors, won't it? Let's put that on a marquee. See and savor Jesus and experience pain. But that's what happens. In the light of the glory of Christ, our sin becomes evident. And we become broken more and more. Brokenness isn't something that happens, oh yeah, I was broken at VBS when I was eight and prayed to receive Jesus and everything's been great since then. Brokenness is a daily experience for true disciples. I mean, that's what life is. Brokenness, repentance, restoration. Brokenness, repentance, restoration as we walk with Christ our whole life. And so the more we see our sin, the more we see the glory of his majesty displayed here We see this on display in the divine words, divine omniscience, divine power, divine holiness. And then Jesus is so merciful, he imparts divine mercy. Peter says, depart from me. But Jesus shows divine mercy. And and Jesus said to Simon, verse 10, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid? Are you kidding me? There's only one way a sinner cannot be afraid in the presence of divine holiness. And that is if he receives forgiveness by the grace and mercy of God. Peter was right. He deserved, due to his sin, to be separated from God. Depart from me. But Christ Jesus shows him amazing grace. Peter had done nothing to earn this. Matter of fact, Peter, he initially seemed to hesitate to obey Jesus' command. And yet, we see here Christ just showing divine mercy on Peter. And he would demonstrate it over and over again because Peter will show that he's hard-headed, impulsive, and foolish all throughout the Gospels. Yet Jesus spares this sinner and commissions him for a Gospel mission. Jesus shows grace to those who recognize their sinfulness. Jesus shows grace and mercy to those who recognize their sinfulness blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted the ones who fall on their faces knowing that they are bankrupt sinners the ones who are broken and mourn over their sinful state they are the very ones to whom jesus shows divine mercy and grace god opposes the proud he gives grace to the humble faced with the holiness of god Once one's eyes have been opened to see the holiness of God, he or she crumbles and is in a posture now to receive grace. Isn't that what Way of the Master is all about? As we're talking about this evangelism program, Way of the Master? Why do you hammer them with the law? To be a jerk? No, because the law is the reflection of the holiness of God. And they need to see the holiness of God and be stunned by their own sinfulness so they can hear the gospel and be saved. That's why the grace of God to wretches like you and I is what drives us to be on mission for God. Isn't it interesting that God so often commissions people after he crushes them? I mean, all those stories you read from the, I was referring to in the Old Testament, almost every single one of them. Just like Isaiah, after he's crushed by God's holiness, he says, here I am, send me. Paul, after being knocked silly by Jesus on the road to Damascus, is shown mercy and saved by God's grace and sub- subsequently is commissioned to be an apostle to the Gentiles. You see, you see that with almost all the stories I mentioned. So same thing here. Jesus says, do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. The only people qualified to catch men are broken sinners who have seen the holiness of God, seen their own sinfulness, repented of their sin, depart from me, and receive divine mercy and grace. And that's what compels us to go on mission. It drives us on mission. It's the fuel for our missions. And so now, I, I know I'm going a little bit over, but I'm just going to draw the sermon now to a close and, and get go to that second point that I was trying to make this morning. And that is simply that, that, that this is all about a larger thing here. This is all about man catching. Why has Jesus allowed all these things to happen? Literally the word catching men here as Luke puts it, means, well, as Jesus said it, means to catch men alive. So unlike the fish here in the story, Jesus is sending these men on a mission to bring life, not death. But here's what I want us to see. This whole incident was designed to show them something about their mission, about their man-catching mission. Okay? Number one, man-fishers must put their confidence in Jesus' words, not our weak words. Our confidence for the mission is in the divine words of Christ. The word of God. Not in our words. That's why apologetics, although it's good, is not sufficient to save anybody. It's clever words, well thought out logic, but what what saves, the power unto salvation is the gospel. We need the word. Also, man fishers must trust in Jesus' omniscience, not our futile knowledge. We, we trust and obey the words of Christ. He knows where the fish are. He, he knows whose are his. He'll draw them in unto himself. We don't have to devise clever methods of drawing the fish. We simply obey his commands and put down the nets. We, we trust his omniscience. Thirdly, man fishers must put their hope in his power, not ours. His power, not our strength. Now we must work. We, we need to work. I mean, the, the, as Jesus, if this is an illustration of man catching, Jesus tells them to put the nets in the, in the water and they have to draw it back out. They're doing some hard work. So we too must work. The fish aren't just going to jump in the boat. It's not the way it works. They're not just going to park the boat in the middle of the ocean and say, okay, I'm trusting you, Jesus. We, we need to know that it is His power at work in us But we know that we are to work hard on behalf of Christ. And we know that it's his power ultimately that's at work. His power is made perfect in our weakness. Finally, or not finally, but fourthly, Manfishers point to Jesus' holiness and the demands of Jesus' holiness and not felt needs. You, You got finances, financial problems. You got marriage problems. You got kid problems. Those are problems. I'm not saying that the church can't help you with that. But you got a sin problem. Holiness is your biggest problem. And so, manfishers point to the holiness of Christ and the demands of his holiness. And finally, manfishers proclaim Jesus' mercy and grace for sinners. As these manfishers see and savor Jesus' divine words, They see and savor his omniscience. They see and savor his divine power. They see and savor his holiness. They see and savor his mercy. They then, as a result of that, treasure Christ above all things. And in verse 11, it says, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They left everything, including the greatest financial boon that their small business had ever experienced. Now, Zebedee probably profited from it. But they didn't. They left everything. They left this huge... I mean, they could have said, you know what, Jesus, that's great about us going and catching him in, but how about you catch fish with us? And I'll write a book. We'll call it Your Best Catch Now. How about that? you know what? If we just trust you enough, we'll get lots of fish every time. Right, Jesus? Money coming in. We'll buy a new boat with a Mercedes logo on the front of it. Jesus is not a tool to be used by fools. He is a master and king of the universe, and he says, follow me, you drop everything and follow him, even if it means you drop the blessings he just gave you. So they left everything. So we read in Luke, my great Mother's Day verse for today. We read in Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's pretty heavy. And so as we think about our divine call, my, my friends, if, if, let me just say this. There is no way, there is no way you can, you can leave everything, verse 11... Luke chapter 14 verse 26, there is no way you can do it if you haven't understood the divine glory of his words, his omniscience, his power, and his holiness. If you haven't seen Christ for who he is and Jesus is just a cool dude or your homeboy and he's not the ruler of the universe, omniscient, all-powerful, holy, then you're never going to follow verse 11. You're never going to be able to do that because Christ is not a bigger treasure than the other treasures the world has to offer. You have to see the glory of Christ, not only, first of all, to repent of your sins, as we talked about earlier, but also to follow this command, to drop everything and follow him. We have to treasure Christ above all things. So this morning, as we close with a song, and I want you just to be keeping your mind on these things. This commission to the disciples to be catching men isn't just for them. It's for us as well, I believe. We are to be man-catchers. But we can't be man-catchers unless we see these things and more. So, so I, I love Luke's different angle on this story because I think it helps us understand when Jesus says, Follow me, who's the me he's talking about? Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Let's pray. your heads bowed and your eyes closed, as I like to do in every service, if there be anyone here this morning who, I'll just put it this way, has not been broken by your sin, you've done the religious thing, you've done the church thing, your family's a good family, you seem to have it all together, Jesus seems to be blessing, but you've never been broken over your sin, then my friend, you may just be on a comfortable ride to hell. Because there is no forgiveness of sin without repentance. And so if you want to talk to me this morning about the gospel, I'll be available down front. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see and savor Jesus more and more and more and more. And in doing so, Lord, that you would break us more and more and more. That you'd show us our pride. That you'd show us all of our sin. That you'd show us how... Poorly we are fathering. How poorly we are being husbands and wives. And Lord Jesus, I pray for the mothers here this morning. Lord, as, as they've considered these things, maybe there's moms in here feeling broken. That They haven't been the man-catching moms that they're supposed to be. Oh, but God, I thank you that you give us grace and mercy. And John 1, 9 says that if we'll confess our sin, that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, we believe that verse and we believe the only reason that you are faithful and just, just, is because you're the just and the justifier. And so God, we thank you for what Jesus has done on our behalf. We thank you for this amazing grace. We pray, Lord, this morning that you'd help us be the people you want us to be. Lord, what are we hanging on to? What boat full of fish are we clinging to? What business will we not let go of and give to you? What family member are we unwilling to hate as it compares to our relationship with you? So God, I pray that you convict our hearts of our sin and heal our hearts with your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.